Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. You know when people say you're brave because you've got a few grey hairs? Well, my guest this week is living proof, as if it were needed, that that is a right old load of BS. Channel 4 international editor Lindsay Hilsom is an acclaimed foreign correspondent who has reported from all over the world, including Iraq, Syria, Gaza, Kosovo and Rwanda. She also won the James Tate Black Award for In Extremis, her devastating biography of her friend, the foreign reporter Marie Colvin, who was killed reporting from Syria in 2012. A very good friend of mine some time ago said to me, oh, she said, Lynn, you're so brave. Going grey in public on television. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's, that is insane. Lindsay is just as bold as her job might lead you to expect. She takes no prisoners as she talks about managing menopause in a war zone, being in a minority on the box, and how she finally found the perfect answer to give us a smile, love. Only took 40 years. Well, Lindsay, thank you for joining us. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about your career, your background. You started as an aid worker, didn't you? Yes, I was going to change the world and make it a better place, which is probably one of my less successful projects, I think. (laughs) But yeah, no, that was how how I started. But then I I realised fairly early on that I wasn't much use really because you know I wasn't <laughs> an agronomist and I wasn't a doctor and I wasn't a nurse. I had absolutely no practical skills. All I could do I could speak a couple of languages and um, I could talk to people and I could write it down and I could tell people. And so I realised that actually I was much better off being a journalist because that played to the skills I had. So you went to the BBC at that point? Basically, I was I was a volunteer as an aid worker in Latin America, very long ago, in the late 70s. I mean, it was amazing, really. And I was just so, so lucky because I worked in Guatemala. And, um, and I, I mean, basically, I had got the job sort of by accident. They had asked, could I type and do accounting? And this was in the days of snail mail. So I wrote back and I said, absolutely, I can type and absolutely, I can do accounting. And then I went out and bought Teach Yourself Typing. Yeah. Accounting. Um, <laughs> typing, I've sort of mastered now. Accounting, never. Never Let's forget it. <laughs> forget it. But it, I was working with, with Oxfam in Guatemala and they were so kind for me because I was quite useless. <laughs> But then this was when I kind of discovered what it was that I could do because, you know, they asked me to go and visit a project and find out what was going on. And so I did. And it was, uh, this is just amazing. You know, somebody will let me go and into these villages and to talk to these people and find out what's happening. And these people live such different lives. It was just brilliant. It was a funny thing. I can remember coming back. I lived, lived in this house uh, and I had a little room at the bottom of the garden, which was like a nun's cell. It had, it was sort of all whitewashed and you know, the window quite 
quite high up. When I opened it, I could see this beautiful clear blue sky and a volcano. And I can remember waking up about, I don't know, a couple of months into this into this job and thinking, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And I sort of have, really, which is not being an aid worker, but this thing about being in somebody else's country and asking questions and finding out what, what's going on. So I, I was freelance for a long time there. And then I, from Latin America, I went to, to Africa, to Kenya, where... I worked for UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, as an information officer, again, as a volunteer. And then I began to freelance, and I freelanced for the BBC and The the Guardian for for quite a while. Um, I lived there for about seven years, and then I went back to the UK, and I did get a job with the BBC then. I mean, telling people's stories, I mean, you're being slightly self-deprecating, but telling people's stories is a is a really important skill. And a lot of people can't do it because they're too busy telling their own story. Obviously, there's a skill in, in listening and in being able to write and being able to communicate and being able to, to talk. But the first the first thing is a characteristic, not a skill, isn't it? Which is the curiosity, the wanting mm. to know. That's where it starts. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say that I think being a, a journalist a certain sort of journalist is dependent on no, your level of nosiness, which is oh, yeah. you know, it's is really important. I've got mine is absolutely massive, absolutely massive. There's no end to my nosiness. <laughs> I read that you left the BBC because they kept giving the jobs you wanted to men. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> there is a certain truth in it. I think and I hope things are different now. But after I came back from Kenya uh, to the UK, I got a job with BBC World Service Radio. It's a couple of things. It's I think that nobody took me seriously because I was a young woman. I just wasn't taken seriously. And I found that extremely frustrating. And I think also I was quite angry. I was quite a prickly character. And I think that made people uncomfortable. And then I think that within the system, <laughs> I mean, I can remember <laughs> in the one I met, the man I mainly remember was applying for a job as sort of correspondent number two in Egypt and I walked in and I don't know how old I was um early 30s and um and there's five middle-aged white men sitting opposite and I knew the question which would come at some point and one of them asked how difficult do you think it would be to be a woman in this job in Egypt it's a question which they would not ask now of course anyway uh, I hope not and so I said well I said, I mean, obviously, you know, when it comes to interviewing important people, you know, politicians, generals, and so on, it doesn't make any difference if you're a, a man or a woman, because if you're a woman, you're not seen as an honorary man. If you're a foreigner, so it's absolutely you no know, problem at all. And But when it comes to interviewing women, it's much more difficult for male journalists than for female journalists, because often they don't have access. So I think that men can only get 50% of the story. But that doesn't mean I don't think you should consider a man for the job, because discrimination. <laughs> I did not get the job. But the chap who did get the job, well, he sort of faded from view, really. His um, his career just drifted away. It's because he could only do half the job, you see. That would be it. <laughs> <laughs> it's astonishing, though, isn't it? When I was reading, I mean, we'll talk about this more later, but when I was reading An Extremist, your biography of Marie Colvin, I was wondering how you would tackle the fact that she was a woman because there's that balance, isn't there? You don't want to be defined by being a woman. You want to be defined by how good you are as a foreign correspondent. But at the same time, it's a factor and your other people judge you by it. So, no, it's a really complicated thing. And this is one which Marie and I certainly agreed on. We absolutely, we, we are not you know, women war correspondents. I sod off. Mm. You know, we, we are correspondents, foreign correspondents who do conflict. But at the same time, when I was writing Marie's biography, her gender was so important because her experiences 
I mean, this is somebody, you know, who who married more than once, who had lots of lovers, who was very, you know, who was bulimic at times. She had all sorts of um, characteristics which were very much about being a woman. And a lot of the, the pain and the agony of her life was about being a woman and the relationship she had and the relationship she didn't have and, and so on. And I worried about it a lot. And in, in the end, I decided to stop worrying about it and just tell Marie's story, the quintessentially female story, even though she was living in what is seen as a man's world. It's a world of war. You know, you work, have worked for 40 years in this man's world. Do you think it's improving? It's more more welcoming, more well, certainly. I mean, I don't I don't think that the experience I had at the BBC you would have now. And um certainly when I look in the Middle East, all the young foreign correspondents who are coming up, nearly all of them are women. Mind you, I think that that is because being a foreign correspondent um has become a you know poorly paid caring profession, really. I mean that, you know, because there are so few staff jobs and most people are freelance and you earn so little. And um you know, and it's dangerous and you're meeting all these people who are in a terrible situation and all of this kind of stuff and writing about them. And, you know, your your life is full of refugees and, you know, people who've been injured and people who've lost family members and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And, yeah, it is more and more women doing this. And so... Yeah, I think it has. I think it has changed a lot, and that and that side of it is good. But it is more precarious than ever it was, and there are fewer staff jobs, and that is bad. I'm wondering if it's become more of a storytelling profession, and this I'm being very very simplistic. Hmm. That more about telling people stories than reporting on bombs. So that's a girl job, not a boy job. Not completely, because actually some of the great proponents of um, reporting on the human side of war rather than, you know, is that a T-72 or a T-55, are men. Um, And I think that that is something that has happened over time, that, yes, I think that in general, the way we report war has changed and that it is more about the human cost. And I think that both men and women do that. And that's and that's all to the best. But, you know, exceptions in that I can think of back in World War II, Claire Hollingworth, who was a great correspondent to work with Telegraph. You know, she loved all the strategy and the armour and so on. That was really her thing, you know, as opposed to Martha Gellhorn, who was very much, you know, writing uh, about the human cost. And Marie was very much the, the human cost as well. Mm. And personally, I think the one should try and do both because I think it is important to know what weaponry is. And I'm not particularly good at it, but I do think it's important to know because, I mean, it's good to know whether, you know, that's an old Soviet tank that they must have got, you know, 40 years ago or look, that's something brand new that they got from the UAE. I mean, it is important to know those things, even though they, I don't always know them as well as I should. No, I mean, I can't honestly admit to a huge interest in hardware, but, you know. It's all part of the story yeah <laughs> when you started out were there other women that you could look up to and think that's that's where mm-hmm. I want to be not a lot frankly I mean Kate Avey was very famous when mm. I was growing up on BBC I mean I have to admit that the sort of role models I had as journalists were more men Charles Wheeler who I thought was the most wonderful compassionate journalist and there's an example of somebody who told a human story in the most amazing way and James Cameron who wrote for the Guardian and also did documentaries so actually the people I looked up to as journalists in the generation just above me mm. needed to be men to talk a bit more about in extremists you didn't meet Marie early on did you you met her was it in the 90s I met her in the in 98 yeah yeah 
How important was that relationship, that friendship, and in fact, your friendships with other female reporters when you're kind of God knows where, doing God knows what? Yeah, look, it's really important. And, you know, the the relationships start with the team because I usually work with a producer and a camera operator and um, some are men and some are women. And I I was very close to a producer I worked with called Sarah who very tragically died of lung cancer. But she and I, you know, went all over the place together and that was a fantastically important relationship and sometimes actually she and I would work with a camera operator called Philippa and that was always a big advantage when you got somewhere particularly in Iran because nobody was expecting three you know women to appear and be the team the correspondent being a woman that's fine but the camera operator yes yeah, so so within the team the relationships are important and then yeah, I mean, Lise Doucette is one of my one of my really good friends from the BBC, and we sort of see each other in in different places. And we're supposed to be competitors, but we're not very competitive, really. We're much more collaborative, and um, you know. But it, again, you know, it's both men and women. I mean, I have loads of, of friends mm-hmm. on the road. My friends on the road are really important to me, and Marie was a very important friend on the road. And I think I say this in the book that sometimes I, when I think about Marie and I sort of think of us as the Selma and Louise of the press corps, you know, that sort of, mm. Marie always made you feel that bit edgier because she was always a bit more adventurous and a bit more brave, you know, so you, you sort of go along in her wake. It's interesting you mentioned that because I'm really interested in the notion of bravery. Mm. Do you think, is it all it's cracked up to be, bravery? <laughs> bravery comes in lots of different forms, doesn't it? I mean, people are always telling me I'm brave, blah, 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 because I, I go to war. So a very good friend of mine some time ago said to me, oh, she said, Lynn, you're so brave. Going grey in public on television. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's, that is insane, isn't it? The number of people who say you're brave for going, one is brave for going grey. <laughs> So, and that's the kind of brave I'm very, very happy with. I'm so glad <laughs> that I never dyed my hair and that I went grey. I'm very happy with grey. You know, discretion is the better part of valour. And so in terms of, of bravery, it's about judging the risk. And that, I think, is where, obviously, Marie did not judge the risk. And that's why Marie is dead, because she was too brave and she took it too far. And I think that you do have to be careful for the people around you and for the people who love you. And I think that also I find that I am less brave or less foolish as the years go by. I mean, my grey hair stands on end thinking of some of the things I did in my 20s, you know. But that's true in all walks of life, isn't it? whether you're a war correspondent or you know, whatever you're doing, the things that you do in your 20s later on, you think, God, how did I get away with that? And I certainly think that now, and I'm, yeah, I'm pretty careful. Also, you know, when you are a bit older, you can't run that fast. <laughs> and the last thing you want is to be the person who gets somebody else injured or killed because you couldn't run fast enough. So they had to slow down for you. That is where it's really significant. And that's much more important than bravery. That's really true. Reading the description of Marie and Paul crawling through the tunnel. Why would I have done that? I was thinking I couldn't, I don't think I could do that physically. I don't think I could do it. Marie was very um, wiry and uh, she used to run and she she was quite fit. You know, she was fitter than me. But yes, I mean, the physical side of, you know, crawling for a kilometre through a sewage tunnel to to get into rebel held Babarama. There is no, A, there is no way I would have got in there. 
because of claustrophobia. Mm. I don't think I could have made it through, but she had that determination, that that thing, and that, that set her aside from other correspondents, and because most would not do that, although some others did. But that's what led to her death. Yeah, it's really, really sad. I think there's a difference, isn't there, as well, between emotional bravery and physical bravery. I wonder if a lot of the things that you did in your 20s and 30s were about physical bravery as opposed to emotional. Just about lack of imagination of not <laughs> how terrible this could be. I think it would... Best not, though, surely. <laughs> Foolishness, I would, um, I would say, more than anything else. But, I mean, I think this stuff is always, it's always at play in your head because I always think in Libya. In Libya, they, they very conveniently had their war along the main road, which is really good because it's easy to get to and then easy to get to the hotel afterwards. So that's really convenient for them. But I remember every time we went right up to the front line, I felt like a fool. And every time I didn't, I felt like a coward. And I think that that's always going on in your in your head. And I think that that's where the team thing's really important because Sarah, who I was telling you about, my lovely producer, Sarah, I would say, let's go a bit further nearer the front line. And Sarah would say, let's not. And that would enable <laughs> me to sound and behave more courageous than I really am, safe in the knowledge that she wouldn't let me. Yes, that's true. I mean, I feel a bit bad about talking about ageing because I do feel like you people don't talk to male foreign correspondents about ageing, but you, you knew what the subject was before we started, so I feel like right. you can cope with that. You're 62. You've gone grey, for which thank you. You know, I think brave is a weird word when it's used in relation to going grey, but thank you because it is very rare. I mean, there aren't many of you, are there, foreign correspondents, but on TV at all, actually. Yes, that's what leads to set and I talk about you know more old bats on the box um, yeah look I think it's it works and I find it's quite interesting because you know sometimes you know people stop me in the street and because they've seen me on television and I quite often get stopped by women of my sort of age and some and a couple of women have said to me it's so nice to see somebody who looks like me out there there is a sort of unnecessary mystique around foreign corresponding, particularly in conflict. And people see somebody who looks like them and it makes it less alien, less distant, less foreign. One of the nicest things anybody ever said to me, I was at a book festival, a woman came up and said, you make me feel like I can understand this. In other words, it is not going to be so complicated and so distant and so strange. I thought that's a really nice thing to say, uh, because of course that's what I'm trying to do. And I do think that it's important to have all sorts of different people. Now, I also think increasingly people are telling their own stories. And one of the things that Lise and uh, Marie's best friend, Jane Wellesley, and I did after she died, we've founded a small charity called the Marie Colvin Journalist Network, where we provide support to young Arab women covering stories in their own countries in the Middle East, you know, providing whatever support we can, whether it, you know, hostile environments, training and counselling and all of that kind of thing. And that, of course, is another thing which I think is really important. That Foreign corresponding is no longer just, you know, white people going to other people mm. and telling the story. It's a much more collaborative thing now, and that's really important. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you talked earlier about there being more women, do you think it's a consequence of the same thing, though, the lack of security? the It's not so well paid. So I don't want to say it's not so well paid so middle-aged white men don't want to do it but I am going to say that (laughs) some of that but it's usually I mean you know particularly war corresponding is usually young people at least initially by definition it's obviously going to be a young people's thing and then you kind of thin out as you get older and people think of something a bit more grown up to do apart from those of us who've never thought of anything more grown up (laughs) um and still want oh god it's so exciting I want to be there yeah I mean it's a lot of mixture of of things but I think that there is there's a whole cohort of women and men, certainly in the Middle East and across Asia and Africa as well, who want to be journalists to a generation ago that wouldn't have been an option. And now it is, and it's really important to find those voices because they tell different stories and they have a deeper understanding. Language skills, cultural skills, all of that is there. And, um, you know, we, we need that. Can you envisage a situation at a time even when you won't think, I want to be there, it's so exciting? Well, one of the things I really liked in writing Marie's biography was the sort of archive research. She left amazing journals and, and papers. And um, she, she was brought up on Long Island and her, her mother and her sister very kindly let me you know, look at a box of her things from childhood and so on. And I was staying on Long Island at the time. I took digging into the box and I found this plastic covered child's diary, which was locked with a little key. I couldn't find the key. And, and I sliced through it and it was Marie's first diary from when she was 13 years old. Oh and my goodness. A leap in my heart at that. It, it was thrilling. It was marvellous. I have to tell you my favourite quote from it. Marie was brought up in a Catholic family and um, five children, and they all had to go to church on Sunday. And uh, my favourite entry goes, to church, warm mini, the mother and the father no like. <laughs> I never met that little girl, but I know who she became. <laughs> yes. So I did get a sense then of the thrill of of archive research, of digging into a into a cardboard box. And so I don't think you always, you know, have to be on the front line. And I think that combination is is good. 
I think the idea of being where history is happening is, you know, yeah, look, I like that. It doesn't have to be a war. I've been, you know, covering the US elections. Mm. I think that was absolutely fascinating to go to Tombstone, Arizona, to the Hell Dorado Festival and just talk to all the people there and why they supported Trump and why they loved him, to go to Michigan and meet the militia there and talk to them. You know, all of these kind of things to me are, yeah. It's it's fascinating. It all boils down to talking to people, doesn't it? And relating their stories back. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's right. So that's why I think an, a bit of archive, a diary, you know, a letter that hasn't been, you know, read for 30 years or 50 years, that's also has that thrill, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Do you think it would be easier for us if we could see more women like you on the telly? Absolutely. No, I look, I definitely think television, it's a visual medium. You have to make some adjustments and so on. I, I try not to go on, you know, looking like a bag lady or a tramp. I do try, you know, I find a way to dress that works, that is not distracting. I wear, you know, my scarves and my shirts, which look quite tidy and so on. I, I get a decent haircut. You have to do all that. I don't think there's anything wrong in, in doing that. But you can do that at any age and a lot of that is about confidence and women you know feeling unhappy when they see themselves on a screen or in a mirror and thinking well I don't want to to be confronted by that I mean I feel as I said earlier on that when I was a young woman I felt that I wasn't taken seriously and I feel like mm. I am taken seriously now and you know if I look at the gray hair I've earned every single one of them <laughs> and so you better take me seriously And so I actually don't see it as a disadvantage at all. And I feel that on the whole, people treat me with respect because of it. I find it's it's fine. It really isn't it really isn't a problem. I feel it would be a problem if it was a problem in my own head. I don't mm. really feel that people outside cause me any problems because I'm older. Good. It was one person I interviewed said um that she felt like the only person who age shamed her was herself. Right. And I do think there's you know, there's something in that for sure. At what point do you think you started to be treated with more respect? I joined Channel 4 News when I was 38, and Channel 4 News has been very good to me, and I, and I think that they have treated me with respect. And so, yeah, I would say, I suppose, around around then, really, late 30s. It's another thing I hate to do, but I'm going to do anyway. How do you feel about talking about menopause in a war zone? I was thinking about this. I mean, I can only think of one. There was one occasion I was in Gaza and I was just overcome by a a level of despair, which I've never had before or since, um, which I know must have been hormonal. But it was just unbelievable. I mean, it was... Whoa, it was just wipe out misery. And I can remember having to go behind a building. I was with an all-male team. I had to go behind a building and I just had to somehow pull myself together because there was no way. I mean, I understood what was going on, but mm. I could, there's no way I could explain it. I had a story to do, you know. Yeah. Just had to breathe for, I have no idea how long it was and just pull myself together. And that was, it was just awful. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to go on if if this goes on. And obviously I had the hot flashes. And I was, but anyway, look, I took HRT and I was lucky um, in that that sort of sorted things out. Ah, I sorted things out, but then I did get breast cancer, life of dodging bullets, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't too bad. It was a lump. I had a lump out and um, marvellous surgeon. She was just fantastic and so on. And 
it was the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, which meant that the only thing I missed was the Haiti earthquake. Now, if it had been a year later, I would have missed the Arab Spring. I now, love that you, that's how you think about it. It's just unbearable, isn't it? So, you know, actually, it wasn't too bad. And on the menopause thing, I'm torn about this because I totally understand and agree with you about acknowledging it, talking about it. You know, I read your book. There was stuff I learned from your book. All good. But you can't do the special pleading, can you? No. You can't for anything. You know, if you want men to treat you on a level then you have to operate on a level. And I'm going to sound like such an old trout now. You can't make a fuss about it. I really don't feel you can. And so I feel a bit mixed about talking about it too much. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I mean, I spent a few years working with a bunch of millennial women. Mm. And I think that changed my perspective because I grew up, you know, don't have periods, don't have period pain, don't have PMS, don't don't talk about any of that. Just pretend you're one of them. Like you say, if you want to be treated on a level, behave on a level. And then when I started working with them, they were all, I've got endometriosis. I need to work from home one day a month. That's it. Take it or leave it. You know, and it started to become, look, let's, let's just talk about this. And I suppose I feel with not so much the hot flushes because they're physical and you know what they are, but the massive crisis of confidence. And like you said, the huge wave of despair that comes in and you just don't know what the hell's going on. If nobody talks about it, then you don't know what's happening and then it becomes worse. So that's my concern. What you don't want is for somebody to say, oh, well, we won't send her to Gaza because she might have a wave of despair. No, 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 that's true. And I don't want women to ever count themselves out of things. That is my worry about it. Do you think that's only because the system is run by men? To some extent, that's true. It's the whole thing about being victims. And I understand this is a generational thing as well. I worry about women recasting themselves as traumatised by everything bad that ever happens to them. And so you become like bring me my smelling salts, Victorian women again, when you don't mean to do that. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm old fashioned. I think that there is a a role for soldiering on. I don't disagree with you about the soldiering on. But I also think like with the people who are saying, and I'm not saying you're saying this, that um, Me Too was bad because it cast women as victims. The flip side of that is, no, it actually just stopped men getting away with appalling behaviour. You know, these things are complicated to navigate. So I was very angry when I was younger. And I lived in Mexico City at one point, and you would get touched and, you know, ogled and was that the whole time it was hideous. So I carried a rolled up newspaper with which I would hit anybody who did that, which was fine, except that what it meant was that I was going around. I was getting more angry the whole time because I was just whacking people. <laughs> left and centre. And then I did in the UK, I tapped a guy at the top of Oxford Street once. I don't think he knew what had hit him. I very nearly broke a shop front. Anyway, but all that meant was that I was sort of rigid with fury. Anyway, of course, as you get older, it just doesn't happen anymore, which is nice. A couple of years ago, I was walking into a park near where I work at Channel 4 News, and uh, there were a bunch of guys on a bench, and they were sort of shouting at women as I went past. And as I walked past, they 
said something like, you know, come on, give us a smile. So I just turned around and told them to fuck off. Then they abused me back and so on. Anyway, so I went off trembling with fury, as you can imagine. And I thought, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to go out the other gate and so on. And then I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to go out the other gate. And I sort of stopped and I ate my sandwich. Then I went back and they were still there. And I stopped in front of them and I said, I'm not going to smile because I am a highly intelligent, accomplished woman and you are a bunch of sad losers with small penises sitting on park bench. <laughs> and what did they say? I had no idea. I'd left by then. <laughs> and that just made me so happy for all the times that I hadn't managed to think of the right thing to say. I've got this theory that we aren't less angry, it's just more channeled, and I think that's right. You just channeled it straight at them instead of into yourself. I was slightly proud of myself. I was like, yes, I found a way of doing that. When you were going around Mexico City smacking Ben with newspaper, a rolled up newspaper, did anybody ever say anything? I remember once a couple of guys were very surprised and we actually ended up going for coffee and having a conversation and that was really nice actually and we talked about you know attitudes to men and women and it was very good. Um, again, that's the kind of thing which you do when you're 21. You know, you're kind of open to those conversations with strangers. My fury was such that it, on the whole, didn't allow for that. And in the end, I was just damaging myself. It was a way of taking it in. Because you don't want to go around the world that angry. No, it's you that ultimately suffers. Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't work. And I would like to hope that it isn't like that for young women now. I have a feeling it still is to some extent. I think so. I think some of them certainly have a different attitude to it than maybe my generation did, but it certainly seems to still be there. Um, I've just got a few questions that I always ask at the end. Um, what's your emotional age? My emotional age, I would say, is in my early 40s in the sense that that was when I began to be happier and feel more confident in my life, in the work I was doing. I had recently uh, met the partner who I'm still with, Tim, and we went around the world. You know, I feel that that's the sort of best age for me. In other ways, I think, you know, I think that as you get older, you can relate to yourself as a child more. And the sort of adolescent years and the 20s seems such an aberration, whereas I can look back on the child I was at the age of, I don't know, about nine or 10, and that somehow seems more familiar or more authentic than some of the stuff that happened in between. That makes loads of sense to me. I certainly feel maybe not probably in the last handful of years. Mm. But yeah, I feel that I have more in common with little me than 20-something me, for sure. Interesting. Um, what's the book that you can't kind of do without? Well, there's so many, which is difficult. But I think one of my absolute favourites is Just Kids by Patti Smith. Because, of course, Patti Smith is another, you know, woman of, of our my generation. Well, oh, she's so cool. She's so cool with her long grey hair and so on. But the book is it's about her relationship with, with Robert Mapplethorpe when they first came to New York in their 20s. And, again, it's such a fascinating book because it's a, it's about love, but it's not really about sexual love because he was gay. I mean, it's a, it's a different kind of love. And it's about that era and being in the Chelsea Hotel in the early 70s and so on, which is a slightly romantic era. I read it when I was writing the Marie book and it put me in despair because I thought I can never write as well as this. This is so brilliant. And I was in New York and I, I went to the East Village and I bought a very lovely dark red velvet coat and I thought, ah, I can't write like Petty Smith, but I can get the look. Yeah. <laughs> 
Patty Smith's a poet, though, isn't she? I mean, she's the book is so it's limpid. It's just so simply written, and that's what I I just think it's marvelous. It's a beautiful book. Do you follow her on Instagram? Are you on Instagram? I'm not on Instagram, actually. No, no. Oh, it's worth joining just to follow Patty Smith, even if you don't do anything else. She's wonderful on Instagram. She's gorgeous. Um, what would you tell your younger self or, or in fact, young women? I think the thing that sort of bothers me about young women that I see is not pushing themselves in the sense that when it comes to sort of promotions and things like that at work, a lot of younger women journalists come and talk to me, which I love. It's really nice. But they'll often say, oh, well, I don't think I'm quite ready for that yet. or I shouldn't do that yet. And I think, no, 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 no listen to me. The guys are going to go for that job, even if they're not qualified. And you're probably right. You aren't quite qualified, but never mind. Just go for it. Just stretch yourself, push that bit more, leap that bit ahead, because that is one of the ways in which women get left behind. Because they say, oh, well, you know, I haven't done this. I haven't got that training course. I haven't got that qualification. And so I shouldn't do that yet, maybe in a couple of years' time. And so I'm thinking, no, 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 no. These guys are coming up on the inside lane and overtaking you. You've got to push yourself to do the thing which is a bit more difficult a bit more advanced and so that I think is is something that they really I think it's really important and it's a confidence issue more than anything else and it's um and it's also ability to to cope with being knocked back if you don't get it if you don't get it fine try again next time but that I think is important have you always been good at at coping with being knocked back and or is that a new development I'm not saying I'm good at it I'm I'm a bit crap at it (laughs) You know, I was never that interested in seniority, except in the sense of getting the freedom to do the stories I wanted to do or go to the places I wanted to go to. But in terms of being knocked back, no, I mean, this is long ago, after I didn't get that job in Egypt and didn't get six other jobs, I I went freelance. Um, I, you know, cried every day for six months because my career was over and it was all over and it was a disaster and... You know, everything was terrible. No, I, you know, just like everybody else, I'm, you know, rejection. Oh, God, you know, blokes who turned me down in years gone by. Oh, I missed the Ethiopian famine because I had a broken heart. Can you? <laughs> I was in Kenya and I had a broken heart and I went back to cry on my mother's shoulder rather than going to get the story that I was in a position to go and get. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> I find that hard to really hard to believe now. No, I mean, you know, still a bit shit in so many ways. Um, What's your superpower? The superpower, I mean, the more desperate a situation gets, the calmer I get. And I think that that's quite a useful thing in life. I do stay quite calm. And I think that that's a thing that's quite good. In Uganda in the 1980s, there was this, female warrior called Alice Lequena, awful woman. The people who followed her, she used to smear them with sheer nut oil, which she said would uh, protect them from the bullets, which of course didn't protect them from the bullets, they all died. But it would be good to have a superpower which meant that you could actually smear people with butter and it would protect them from the bullets, wouldn't it? (laughs) You've really thought about this, haven't you? I've been listening to your podcast, Sam, you know, I don't come into anything without preparation. No, bloody journalists, you see. (laughs) You haven't asked me for my older women role models yet. Oh, okay. Well, we'll I think I probably just changed. It's like, who is your old bird role model? Dolly Parton and Angela Merkel. Dolly Parton, obviously, we all love Dolly Parton, partly because she's a feminist in disguise, which I find fascinating because I've never She's brilliant, it. isn't she? Obviously, she's a, a brilliant businesswoman and people didn't know what a brilliant businesswoman she was because she was in disguise as the girl singer and they didn't realise how 
brilliant her songwriting was or how prolific she was. Anyway, then she became unbelievably rich. And then obviously she's given the money for creating the vaccine against COVID-19. And she has this massive literacy program in Tennessee because her father was illiterate. So Dolly Parton, absolutely. And Angela Merkel, because she's so constant, isn't she, as a leader? And she's so serious and she doesn't compromise. And also in 2015, she took a huge political risk by opening up Germany to say they will have, they will accept a million refugees. Now, I was traveling through Europe with those refugees at that time. And, you know, Hungary was closing the borders. Everybody was closing up and saying no. And she just stood and she said, this is the right thing to do. And this is what we're going to do. And it cost her massively. I think it will be very good for Germany. I think they've got a whole load of quite well-educated Syrians who came in at, at that time and they will be excellent citizens and so on. But she took that risk for what was right. So I really admire Angela Merkel. My style one is Christine Lagarde, former head of the IMF and now head of the EGB, European Bank. Her style. Oh, God. Great hair. Oh, she's got great hair. I've always tried to have my hair like hers. doesn't work. She wears clothes that I could never wear. You know, she wears those very, very elegant, understated um, suits and so on. She always looks really, really good. But she never has to run from a tank, does she? She doesn't, no. But if she did, I've, I have every faith that she would do it with <laughs> efficiency. I think you're right. But you've got your scarves. You're wearing a really lovely purple one. So. Yes, yes. No, I love scarves. The scarves are very useful because if you're somewhere, you know, which is kind of muddy or dusty or whatever, scarf kind of improves everything. Also, if you break anything, if you break your arm, you can use it as a sling. If you get shot, you can use it as a bandage. And, you know, there's endless uses for a scarf. <laughs> All right, last one. How many fucks do you give? I still give more than I should. I still care more than I should about what other people think. So that I'm working on. That's interesting. I never believe anyone who says none, though. Yeah, it's hard to give none. I do give fewer, but if I gave none, maybe that would be giving up completely. It's a good way of looking at it. Thank you so much. You've been absolutely brilliant. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other Sam Baker using the hashtag #TheShift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 